We're looking at the building of the tabernacle tonight, or at least the blueprints. They haven't started constructing yet, but the blueprints of the tabernacle. I titled this chapters 27 and 28 of Exodus for glory and beauty. And for Exodus 27, I chose verse 20 where the Lord told Moses, you shall command the children of Israel that they bring you pure oil of pressed olives for the light to cause the lamp to burn continually. And so it was hard to kind of glean through chapter 27 and find a key verse. And there were two possibilities that I looked at and kind of zeroed in on the importance of the oil of the lamp that the menorah would continue to burn in the house of the Lord. And so tonight we're going to look at God giving Moses instructions. Moses is still on the mountain. He's received the Ten Commandments from the Lord, but the Lord gave him numerous instructions about the building of the tabernacle, laying out all the Uh, The courtyard of the tabernacle, the tents of the tabernacle, the items that would be in the tabernacle itself, the Holy of Holies and contained within the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat. I don't think we've gotten to the altar of incense yet, but we will look at the bronze altar and the tabernacle tonight and the altar of burnt offerings and the courts of the tabernacle, and then the care for the lamp, the menorah, all kind of contained in here. We need to remember as we go through these descriptions, they are a copy of the heavenlies. That's why the Lord continued to say, as we closed out in Exodus 25, 40, see see to it that you make them according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. And so they were required to follow the instructions, the building, the blueprints, the specifications that God is giving Moses for the children of Israel, that they would construct a tabernacle, that the Lord's presence would be among them, as we'll learn later, much later, a few chapters to go, but we'll learn that the tabernacle would be set up largely in the center of the camp, that all the people, when they would rise up in the morning and come out of their tent doors, all facing, no matter if they're from the east, west, north, or south, they all face toward the tabernacle and the presence of God. And so we find these wonderful A wonderful study as we go through. It helps us to understand the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Why certain metals were used from gold to silver to bronze. And we begin in chapter 27. Looking at the bronze altar. In verses 1 through 8, I'm just going to read verses 1 and 2. It says, you shall make an altar of acacia wood. Five cubits long, five cubits wide. The altar shall be square, and its height shall be three cubits. And you shall make its horns on 
and you shall make its horns on its four corners. Its horns shall be of one piece with it, and you shall overlay it with bronze. So although there are two altars connected to the tabernacle, the temple worship, the altar of incense was made of pure gold, and no sacrifices were to be offered on that altar. They would receive the blood of the sacrifice, incense from the uh, that were fueled from the fire of the bronze altar would give the fuel, the light to burning of the incense on the golden altar that was inside the tabernacle. But the bronze altar was outside in the courtyard of the tabernacle area. And it was a place where the priests ministered to God for the people. And the people themselves could bring their offerings to the Lord. And so if we read the entirety of the bronze altar, we find, as we pick up in verses 3 through 8, Also you shall make its pans to receive its ashes, its shovels and its basins, its forks, its fire pans, and you shall make all its utensils of bronze. You shall make a grate for it, a network of bronze, and on the network you shall make four bronze rings at all its corners, and you shall put it under the rim of the altar beneath that the network may be midway up the altar, and you shall make poles for the altar, poles for poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with bronze. The poles shall be put into the rings. And the poles shall be on the two sides of the altar to bear it. And you shall make it hollow with boards. This, as it is shown on the mountain, so they make it. And so the specifications of this altar. It was actually made of bronze. And in the Bible, bronze speaks of judgment. And so it was a place for the worshipers to bring their offerings to the Lord where sacrifices would be made and a memorial portion of that sacrifice would be burned up on the altar, the blood sprinkled on the horns of the altar. The bronze altar made of acacia wood once again, and we looked at that last week, a very hard, tight-grained wood that uh, is resistant to insects and perfect for what it was being used for here. And it was to be made of this acacia wood overlaid with bronze. It was to be square. It said five cubits by five cubits for us. It was seven and a half feet squared and four and a half feet high. It had horns on the corners of the altars. In the Bible, horns speaks about power, speaks about strength. We'll read of those in the Old Testament a couple of times. People would take refuge by grabbing onto the horns of the altar, something which they were not to touch, but they would take refuge there. But it was hollow. It had a grate in the center of it, and so it it was hollow because they were not to have an altar that was constructed by the hands of men. As God said in Exodus 20, 24 and 25, an altar of earth you shall make for me, and you shall sacrifice on on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, 
your sheep, your oxen, and every place where I record my name, I will come to you and I will bless you. And if you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stone, for you... For if you use your tool on it, you have profaned it. And so it was hollow because the altar was set over either a a mound of dirt or a mound of unhewn stones. And that was the altar of the Lord. And this grating system around it uh, was something that they could carry from place to place where sacrifices would be made. Today, The sacrifice has been provided for us by Jesus' work upon the cross. Hebrews 10, verses 4 and 5, well, 4 and then 9 and 10 says, For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Everything that God was setting up for Israel was technically a temporary solution until the coming of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. And so we're looking at the first and the tabernacle and the offering system that God set up. God takes away the first, which we're looking at tonight, that he might establish the second That is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And then Hebrews 10.10 says, By that we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus once and for all. So all these things that God has been instructing Moses about, the Ten Commandments, the various laws that he has given Moses, now he's instituting the construction of the tabernacle and the various implements and the furniture of the tabernacle. All these things pointed forward to Jesus Christ. And so Jesus today, that bronze symbolizing judgment, he has taken the judgment of our sins upon him that we might be able to walk in fellowship with God. He has done this, as the author of Hebrews said in Hebrews 10.10, he's done this once and for all. Once and for all, it's a finished work. Never has to be repeated again. Once and for all, for all who call upon the name of the Lord, they shall be saved. So the courtyard of the tabernacle, verses 9 through 19 He says in verse 9, You shall make the court of the tabernacle for the south side. There shall be hangings for the court made of fine woven linen, 100 cubits long for one side. And I'll go ahead and just uh, read us through the making of the courtyard, picking up in verse 10 down through 19. As it's 20 pillars, And their 20 sockets shall be of bronze, and the hooks of the pillars and their bands shall be of silver. So we have a combination here of bronze and silver outside in the courtyard. Likewise, along the length of the north side, there shall be hangings 100 cubic long, so equal in length. Uh, For us, it would be 150 feet. But 100 cubics long on the North side, 100 cubits, is 20 pillars and 20 sockets of bronze, the hooks and pillars, and their bands of silver. And then along the width of the court of the west side, the back side of the courtyard of the sanctuary, 
it should be 50 cubits with their 10 pillars and their 10 sockets and the width of the court on the east side shall be 50 cubits. So it's a rectangle, 75 feet uh, in width and 150 feet long. And the east side would be the opening, the door, that they would be able to gain access to the courtyard and to the tabernacle itself. And so worshipers could enter the courtyard. Only the priest could serve in the tabernacle and only the high priest in the Holy of Holies that was in the tabernacle. See where I'm at here. We're on the uh, east side, the hangings, verse 14. On one side of the gate shall be 15 cubits with their three pillars and three sockets. On the other side shall be the hanging of 15 cubits with their three pillars and three sockets. So they're forming an opening on the east side that would be about 30 feet wide for people to come and go in that courtyard. For the gate of the court, there shall be a screen 20 cubits long, woven in blue and purple and scarlet yarn, a fine linen thread made by a weaver. It shall have four pillars and four sockets. The pillars around the court shall have bands of silver, and their hooks shall be of silver, and their sockets of bronze. The length of the court shall be 100 cubits, and its width 50 cubits for us, 150 feet by 75 feet and woven of fine linen thread and of sockets of bronze, all the utensils of the tabernacle for all its service and on all its pegs, and the pegs of the court shall be of bronze. And so rapidly just kind of going through this linen weaved uh, fence that went around the outer portion of the courtyard. It... um, you know, basing on a cubit, I think, again, they say 18 inches from man's elbow to the tip of his fingers. Years ago, I measured mine. It used to be 90, 19 inches. So it depends um, what that measurement was. Some take it up to 21 and a half inches. Uh, they would use the same calculations of, I think, the longer, 21 and a half, the replica of the Ark down in Kentucky that you can go visit. It's based on the larger larger cubic measurements, and it is quite a large. Either way, it would have been big, but it's really big now. But they're basing it off that measurement for us in feet, 150 by 75. And most of the yard was in the front of the tabernacle. This in the front of the tabernacle was where the bronze altar was located, but also the bronze lever where the priest would ceremonially wash before serving at the tabernacle. And so you had these two main pieces in the courtyard, mostly in the front, the bronze lever that we haven't looked at yet, and then the bronze altar that we've recently looked at at the beginning of this chapter. And the gates of the courtyard, the screen was made of the same blue, purple, scarlet thread, fine linen that uh, was connected to the tabernacle itself. And so there was a, a bit of what was on the inner side of the tabernacle. Remember, we looked at this last week and it began with this beautifully woven 
piece of material with uh, cherubims woven into it, but made of the same blue, purple, and scarlet thread. But all of that was covered by the coverings that went over the tabernacle. So for the common people, the tent looked pretty common from the outside. But they did get a glimpse of it through the gates and the screen that made for the entry of the tabernacle. And then everything in the courtyard itself, all the utensils, the tabernacle, including its pegs, were made of bronze. Once again, this area spoke of judgment. It's where sin was dealt with in the courtyard of the tabernacle. And since there was only one entry to the courtyard... It caused the priest and the worshipers always to enter from the east. They always set the tabernacle, wherever they would move it, and put the courtyard up again and tear it down. And if God would cause his Shekinah glory cloud to pick up and get on the move, especially during the 40 years of wilderness wanderings, it was always set up eastward. People always entered from the east in Israel today. There is an eastern gate in the old wall of the temple that is no longer there, but you can see an eastern gate that's half buried under the earth that's around it, and there's a Muslim uh, graveyard planted right in front of that gate. They have the Muslims blocked it in. They know they read scripture too. And they know that the Bible says Jesus, when he returns, he's going to come through the eastern gate. And so they blocked in the gate. It's all right. You're not going to get in, Jesus. We're not going to let you in. And they put a their graveyard there, a Muslim graveyard, just outside the wall to defile it. None of this will keep Jesus out, but this is what they have attempted to do. It's kind of humorous from... I guess this Western Christian mindset. So if you go to Israel, you have the Mount of uh, Mount Moriah, where the Temple Mount is, and today we have the Muslims Mosque on top of that, two mosques up there. But you have that, and on the east side they have planted this Muslim graveyard. You go into this deep valley, and it comes back up to the Mount of Olives. And on the Mount of Olives side, there's a Jewish graveyard. All the Jews are buried with their feet pointing toward the Temple Mount. So when the resurrection happens, they're facing the right direction. All they have to do is pop up out of the grave. So that's the humorous side for me. Um, But today, salvation isn't through a physical temple. There is no temple. It is an impossibility Today, the Jews, Orthodox Jews, say that it's their good works now that get them and keep them in fellowship with God because there's no sacrifice. Well, this is because Jesus Christ has already paid the price for us. We already looked at that, that Hebrews 10.10 again, that by that we will be sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. And then Jesus today... In John 10:9, he declared for us today, and is still true to this day, in John 10:9, Jesus declared to his disciples, I am the door, and if anyone enters by me, he will be saved 
and will go in and out and find pasture. So today, Christ is the door. To enter into fellowship, we have to enter through Christ and his offering, his sacrifice. And so he finishes out this chapter and for the book of Exodus, kind of a shorter chapter, but he finishes out with two verses speaking about the oil of the menorah. Verses 20 and 21. And you shall command the children of Israel that they should bring pure oil of pressed olives for the light to cause the lamp to burn continually and in the tabernacle of meeting outside the veil, which is before the testimony. So he's telling us in the holy place, but not in the holy of holies. The lamp is in the holy place, but not where the testimony is, the Ark of the Covenant. So in the tabernacle of meeting outside the veil, which is before the testimony, Aaron and his son shall tend it from evening until morning before the Lord. It shall be a statue forever to their generations on behalf of the children of Israel. So from evening, from dusk until dawn, they would tend the lamp of the memorial, menorah turning its wake, adding oil to the lamp itself. But the oil itself, it came from the offering of the children of Israel. Command the children of Israel to bring pure oil of pressed olives. So we might relate this to pure virgin olive oil today. I was looking into this, the pure olive oil of the menorah itself. And it tells us the stone addition of chumash, that, that CH is probably a guttural K sound in the Hebrew, but I don't do those sounds too well. But anyways, it says the purest, only the purest oil could be used for the lamp, the menorah. The purest of the pure, it was obtained by slightly pressing the very ripe olives, but without crushing them. A minute quantity of oil would be squeezed out, only a drop or so from each olive. You can imagine this. You're lighting a lamp, seven lamps on the menorah, you have to keep them going all night and give me another olive. One, two, give me another olive. One, two. It would take quite a bit of pressing because you don't want to crush it. They would crush that later. You get different oil out of that. So only a drop or so from each olive. This oil was more pure than any of the other oil obtained via crushing. So this was a process to obtain the oil and it was an offering of the people. Tell the people to bring, as he said, command the children of Israel to bring you the purest of pressed olives for the light. And that would be something for the family. I don't know how they did this, but initially, I'm sure it became part of a business at some point. But I can envision that would be very special for a family to know that the oil that they squeezed from the olives that they picked was lighting the holy place in the temple and really participating in it in that sense. So in the Bible, the oil often represents the Holy Spirit, while light represents Jesus Christ. After the Babylonian captivity, God called for 
the builders to rebuild the temple that had been destroyed, Solomon's temple that had been destroyed. And in the 70th year, when they were freed, they were called to rebuild the temple, which is known as the second temple, which became Herod's temple. And it's all, there's only been two temples so far, Solomon's temple, the second temple, Herod's temple, we call also because he did such a large remodeling on it. But there have only been two temples. And they were called to rebuild the temple, but because of the economy and the political pressure that surrounded them when they returned back to Jerusalem, the temple's construction sat idle for 15 to 16 years. They got there, they laid the foundation, they built the altar, and that's where it stopped. The people instead busied themselves in building, according to Haggai 1.4, and I know some people say Haggai, we taught through this, I went through that whole thing. I ended up calling it Haggai because it seems more Jewish to me, I guess. But I actually listened to a variety of ways to pronounce it. Haggai 1.4 says, The people busied themselves building their paneled homes. So they couldn't build the temple, but they could build their houses. And the political pressure around there, the Samaritans who had... Uh, replaced the Jews while they were gone for 70 years. There was conflict. They had no conflict with the Jews building their homes, but they did have conflict with the Jews building the temple. And despite of their apathy, their economic and political pressures, God promised Zechariah that he would accomplish the work of rebuilding the temple through the empowering of his Holy Spirit, the oil representing the Spirit of God in our lives. Zechariah 4, verses 1 through 4, the angel of the Lord talked with me, came back and wakened me as a man who is wakened out of his sleep and said, what do you see? And so I said, I'm looking and there is a lamp of solid gold with a bowl on top of it and a stand of seven lamps and seven pipes to the lamps. So a menorah, but here we'll discover that two olive trees are continually feeding the lamps that they would never go out. Verse 3 of Zechariah 4. Two olive trees are by it, one on the right of, of the bowl, one on its left. So I answered and spoke to the angel who talked to me and said, What are these things, my Lord? And he said, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Not in my notes, but he goes on to say that this great mountain of rubble will be removed. And that great mountain of rubble was the stones that had sat around that place, the wall of the city and the temple when the Babylonians destroyed it and they broke it down to the ground. There was just mountains of stone that were left or robbed for building of homes, but not for the rebuilding of temple. And God says to Zerubbabel, the governor, you're going to get it done, but not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. That, Zechariah 4.4, 4, 
was a pretty significant verse early on in the Calvary Chapel movement of how God worked in the Calvary Chapel movement back in the 60s and 70s and built a movement that has lasted to this day and has spread out across the world. But it was the work of the Holy Spirit, not by physical might, not by physical power, but by the Spirit of God. So oil in the Bible often likened to the Holy Spirit. Jesus, though, the light. He said in John 8:12, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. The Bible tells us in the beginning, darkness covered the face of the deep. Back in Genesis, Genesis 1-3, God said, let there be light, and there was light. And in a similar way, the spiritual darkness that hovers over the earth, that is upon this world, is no challenge against the light of Jesus Christ. The light of Jesus is brighter than the darkness of this world. 1 John 4, 4 tells us that he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. That's something I think we need to continually remind ourselves of. That he, Jesus Christ, who is in us, is greater than he who is in the world, than Satan who is in this world. And I think the church is going to come up to challenges in our future. We need to remember We have the oil of the Holy Spirit in our lives as believers. And the light of Jesus Christ who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. So the physical tabernacle and its spiritual significance to the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. The bronze altar, kind of reviewing a little bit. The bronze altar speaks of Jesus's atoning work upon the cross where Jesus offered himself as the lamb without spot or blemish Hebrews 9.14, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. The bronze altar reminds us of the atoning work of Jesus Christ upon the cross where he bore our sins that we might be set free. The entryway, the eastern gate. The single entry point reminds us that Jesus is that access to God. Jesus in John 14, 6 says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And the oil reminds us of the need of the Holy Spirit to enter in our lives. That happens the moment we're saved, but also the promise of Jesus is that he would send another comforter that we would be filled with the spirit and even have the spirit overflow from our lives. In John 14:17, one of those promises from Jesus, the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. And it's my prayer that those, if you're listening on the radio tonight, if you're watching through uh, video, through social media, through our website, Jesus said in John 10:9, I am the door. It's my prayer that you have entered by the gate, Jesus Christ. I am the door, Jesus said in John 10:9. If anyone enters by me, he is saved and will go in and out and find pasture. 
Jesus said, I am the door. So we finish out um, looking at the priestly garments, verses 1 through 43. And I titled this chapter, in verse chapter 28, Holiness to the Lord. And this is all about the making of the garment and especially the garment of the high priest. And also the priestly garments of Aaron's sons initially that would serve with him. So verses 1 and 2, I'll go ahead and read 1 through 4, takes us through our first point. Now take Aaron, your brother, and his sons from him among the children of Israel, that he may minister to me as priest. Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar, and you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. So you shall speak to all who are gifted artisans, whom I have filled with the spirit of wisdom, that they may make Aaron's garments to sanctify him, that he may minister to me as priest. And these are the garments which they shall make, a breastplate, an ephod, a robe, a skillfully woven tunic, a turban, a sash. So they shall make the holy garments for Aaron, your brother and his sons, that they may minister to me as priests. So the priestly garments, along with their adornments that we'll look at in a moment, they set apart Aaron as the high priest, his sons. He had four sons initially. And we'll learn about Nadab and Abihu and their strange fire that they would offer to the Lord and God would just take them out. But two of those sons, Eleazar and Ithamar, would continue to serve as priests, one of them becoming the high priest after his father. Their garments were to be made by gifted artisans. They were holy garments. They were actually sanctified, and we'll find out about this, by the sprinkling of the blood of the altar. So anything that is touched by the blood that is in the service becomes holy to the Lord. It set Aaron and his sons apart that they might minister as priests before God. This thing for Kodesh, is it means holy. Kodesh, holy in the Hebrew, something that is sacred or set apart, a holy thing. And the word indicates something that's been consecrated or set aside for sacred use only. So only when he was serving as a high priest would he put on this robe. It was not to be put on for common use. If so, it would become profane and would not be holy. And the phrase for glory and beauty, the Bible knowledge commentary states about this, the garments for the high priest were to be set apart from common clothing to elevate the office, to give dignity and honor to serve as a constant reminder of God's holiness. I slightly felt guilty looking at this today, thinking, do I dress well enough as a preacher? I kind of dress down on Wednesdays especially, but for my dad, he would say no. When my dad pastored, it was suit and tie on Sunday morning, Sport coat tie on Sunday night, sport coat no tie on Wednesday night. 
That was his dressing down. Uh, but Sunday morning, suit and tie all the time. And uh, it's rare that you see me in those things. So we read through verses 3 and 4. Moses was to call, though, what I want to highlight before we move on, the gifted artisans, those who have been filled with the wisdom of God to make these garments. And we find that God would, in Exodus 31, actually specify two specific men for the work, the working of the building of the tabernacle. And one man, Aholilab, I know I said that wrong. I'll work on it by the time we get to chapter 31. But to put wisdom in the hearts of all the gifted artisans, so we're, I'm looking at 31 verse 6, that they may make all that I have commanded you, the tabernacle of meeting, the ark of the testament, the mercy seat, and the furniture of the tabernacle, the table and its utensils, the pure gold lampstand, its utensils, the altar of burnt offerings and all of its utensils, the levir, its base, the garments, verse 10, Exodus 31, the garments of ministry, the holy garments for Aaron and the priest, and the garments for his son to minister as priest. And so gifted people, God gifts people for certain ministries. The New Testament apostles understood this. Peter wrote about this in 1 Peter 4, 10, and 11, saying, as each one has received a gift. I would not be... I could see myself not making the priestly garments. That wouldn't be me. And Lily knows once when they were doing all this fancy home decorating and painting I tried to do a basket weave painting in the kids' room, our grandkids' playroom we put in the house. And I can't be artistic in that sense. Everything has to be straight and lined, and it's just me. I can't, like, go off the map. Let me draw lines. I'll make it perfect, but I can't just kind of freehand it. That's not me. Maybe I would be involved with the melting of gold and making these bronze instruments and stuff. But the important thing is that each one has been gifted. We've received a gift. First Peter 4.10, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it with the ability that God has supplied, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. The gifts the Lord gives us were to use in the fellowship, in the body of believers, as good stewards, that God would be glorified. He supplies the ability. He supplies the ability. It doesn't mean that we can't hone our craft, become better at what we do, but... He gives us, each one, a gift. Sometimes it takes discovery to find out what our gifts are. Sometimes we have to fail at a few things to discover that, you know, I just can't do a basket weave painting. That's not me. And so give me another job. That's not going to work for me. So sometimes we fail, but in the process of failing, we discover what we're not good at 
what we're not gifted at. And we might discover those things that we are gifted at and those things which we can improve upon in our lives. It has been said that God does not call the equipped, but equips those whom he calls. So the ephod, verses 5 through 14, I'll just read the text. It's the fastest way through it is to read what the word says. They shall take the gold and the blue and the purple and the scarlet thread and fine linen. Isn't that something? They added now to the blue, purple, and scarlet thread, gold thread. And they shall make the ephod of gold and blue and purple and scarlet thread, a fine linen thread, artistically woven. It shall have two shoulder straps joined at its two edges, and so it shall be joined together, and the the, yeah, intricately, I can't say it. I struggle with these things. Very f- fancy woven band of the ephod, <laughs> which is on it, shall be of the same workmanship, woven of gold, blue, purple, scarlet thread of fine linen. Then you shall take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel, six names on one stone, the remaining six names on the other stone, according to their birth. And the work of the engraver in the stone, like the engraver of a signet, you shall engrave the two stones and the names of the sons of Israel. You shall set them in settings of gold. You shall put them on the two stones on the shoulders of the ephod, so they would be actually like fastening the two sides together right on the shoulders with the stones. So Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his shoulders as a memorial. You shall also make the settings of gold. You shall make two chains of pure gold like braided cords, fastened the braided chains to their settings. The chains would have to do with the holding of the um, breastplate, But Aaron's garment, the ephod, uh, made of the same materials here, threads of gold, blue, purple, and scarlet, finely woven. And these, all these found in the tabernacle itself, except this is the first time it mentions threads of gold. The ephod was a very beautifully artistic designed joined at the shoulders by these straps that were clasped together by the onyx stones that carried the names of the tribes of Israel, that Aaron would always bear the names of Israel on his shoulders as he served before the Lord, as a memorial before the Lord. So Aaron, he served for the people. That was his job. So the breastplate that would be um, attached to the front of this ephod, a separate piece, but attached in verses 15 through 30. We ring up, read about the breastplate. You shall make a breastplate of judgment artistically woven according to the workmanship of the ephod. You shall make it of gold, of blue, of purple, of scarlet, of thread, and a fine linen thread. You shall make it, and it shall be doubled into a square, a span shall be its length and a span shall be its width. So let me see. I usually write these things down, but I think in the span has to do with a man's hand, but that seems 
Maybe. Kind of small. It's like six inches. Maybe they had bigger hands back then. Um, (laughs) I usually write that down in my notes, but I didn't have it here. It shall be double its length. So they, um, they were making a pouch. And this pouch was the breastplate that would be that the high priest would wear. You shall put the settings of stones on it, four rolls of stones. The first roll shall be the sardius, the topaz, emerald. This shall be the first roll. The second roll shall be the turquoise, sapphire, and diamond. And the third roll shall be, I can't say that one. Uh, I should have practiced these. Man, I always jump into these things. So amber, agate, and amethyst. And the fourth row, beryl, onyx, and jasper. Lily knows that I don't know much about jewelry or stones. She does, though. They shall be set in gold settings. The stones shall have the names of the sons of Israel, According to their names, like the engravings on the signet, each one with its own name. So 12 stones. Now the 12 stones, each one has the name of one of the tribes of Israel on it. You shall make chains for the breastplate at the end, like the braided cords of pure gold. You shall make two rings of gold for the breastplate, two rings on the end of the breastplate. And then you shall put the two braided chains of gold and the two rings And the ends of the breastplate and the other two ends of the braided chains you shall fasten to the two settings and put them on the shoulder straps of the ephod in the front. And so they're connected to the ephod of the high priestly's garment. You shall make two rings of gold and put them on the breastplate to the end of the breastplate on the edge and the inner side of the ephod. And the other two rings of gold you shall put them on the shoulder straps underneath the ephod toward the front and the right at the seam of the intricately woven band of the ephod. And they shall bind the breastplate by the means of the rings to the rings of the ephod by using the blue cord. And so it was tied on with these cords and chains above the intricately woven band of the ephod and the breastplate, and it does not come loose from the ephod. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel on the breastplate of judgment over his heart. He shall go into the holy place as a memorial before the Lord continually. And you shall put in them the judgment of the Urim and the Thummim, and they shall be over Aaron's heart. So basically, he's describing a very intricately made pouch that had 12 stones on it, each stone bearing one of the names of Israel. Inside the pouch were what is believed these two stones that he would carry the names of the Lord before him over his heart as he served the Lord. And then the Urim and the Thummim were kept in the pouch. And the words mean... Uh, lights and perfections, lights and perfections. And they were carried by the high priest that they could determine the will of God in some situations. And to this day, the Bible doesn't give enough information about how these stones worked. Some believe that the stones actually lit up and others said it was more like a yes or no, a black and white. We might have you've been blackballed or you got white, you're in, black, you're out, something like that. 
some way to identify a yes or no, true or false. But the Bible is doesn't give a lot of information about it. But we know that when King Saul rebelled against the Lord at the end of his life, he sought after a, a medium to seek counsel. He did not seek the high priest, nor, the Bible would say, nor did he seek the Urim and the Thummim. And so these were given for, I think, kings and priests and judges to determine the will of God for the people of God. But we don't quite know how they worked. So blue ephod, a blue robe, verses 31 through 35, you shall make a robe of the ephod, all blue, 31 through 35. When he goes before the Lord, so Aaron shall bear the judgment I, I skipped. You shall make the robe, verse 31, I get there. You shall make the robe of the ephod of all blue. There shall be an opening for the head in the middle of it and shall be woven, binding all around its opening like the opening of a coat of mail. So it does not tear. And upon its hem you shall make pomegranates of blue and purple and scarlet yarn around the hems, bells of gold. Between them all around the golden bells and the pomegranate and the gold golden bell and the pomegranate going back and forth, hemmed around the robe, around the hem of the robe. And it shall be on Aaron as he ministers, and it shall sound, will be heard as he goes into the holy place before the Lord, and when he comes out, that he may not die. And so the ephod, the blue ephod, and so you have the priestly garment, this blue ephod would be underneath that, of the original ephod that we learned about in verses 5 through 14, this would go underneath, um, and it had bells on the hymns of it that Aaron's movements would be heard as he ministered before the Lord, that he said, as he comes and goes, that he might not die. It's not that he would surprise God. Oh, no, Aaron, what's, what's that? Aaron's coming. No surprise for God. But this was a commandment of the Lord as he ministered before the Lord. So he gave him a turban to wear, verses 36 through 39. And you shall make a plate of pure gold, engrave on it the engraving of a signet, holiness to the Lord. And you shall put it on the blue cord that it may be on the turban, and it shall be on the front of the turban. And so it shall be on Aaron's forehead, that Aaron may bear the iniquity of the holy things which the children of Israel hollow in, the, in their holy gifts. And it shall always be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. Verse 39, you shall skillfully weave the tunic of fine linen thread. You shall make it a turban of fine linen and you shall make a sash of woven work, the sash to go around his waist, of course. And then the tunic, he would bear that uh, on his head. But with that metal plate that he always had the words, holiness to the Lord. It's referred to in Exodus 29, 6 as the holy crown. And as he served the Lord, he wore this holy crown. That he might bear the iniquity of the holy things or the sacrifices of Israel, that they might be accepted before the Lord. 
And so thus Aaron became a mediator between our holy God and sinful man. And then the priestly tunics, verses 40 through 43. This is for Aaron and for his sons as well. For Aaron's sons, you shall make tunics and you shall make sashes for them and you shall make hats for them for glory and beauty. And you shall put them on Aaron and your brother, your brother and on his sons with him. And you shall anoint them and consecrate them and sanctify them that they may be they may minister to me as priests. And you shall make for them linen trousers to cover their nakedness that reaches from their waist to their thighs. And they shall be on Aaron and his sons when they come into the tabernacle of meeting or they come near the altar to minister in the holy things that they do not incur iniquity and die. And it shall be a statue forever for him to his descendants after him. And so these holy garments, they were to make for Aaron and his sons. They were to anoint, to consecrate them, to sanctify them, that they might serve as priests before the Lord. And they were to even have holy undergarments that would cover their nakedness before the Lord. Remember there in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve took of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they realized that they were naked and they tried to make a covering for themselves and to hide because of their nakedness. And so that is nakedness. When in innocence, it's no big deal. In the garden, when in the time of innocence, it was no big deal. But once they ate of that fruit, they realized their eyes were open. It became a big deal. Another perhaps reason of this covering of their nakedness from their waist to their thighs was they were to be unlike the priest of the pagan gods in the land of which they would occupy. They were always to approach the Lord with dignity and care for glory and for beauty that they would not defame the tabernacle or the office of the priesthood that could mean certain death and would mean certain death to two of Aaron's sons. So the high priest became that ultimate mediator between God and the nation of Israel. The high priest needed to be a direct descendant of Aaron, Moses' brother, and the current high priest would always anoint one of his sons to succeed him as high priest. And the duties of the high priest was to offer sacrifices on the Day of Atonement, to offer prayers of intercession before the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant on the Day of Atonement, and to manage and supervise uh, the other priests and the operation of the temple or tabernacle. And just as Aaron and his sons were mediator between God and the people of Israel, Jesus now has become that one and only Mediator between God and all humanity. First Timothy 2.5 tells us, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself a ransom for all. Only through Jesus can we now come boldly to the throne of grace. As Hebrews 4, verses 15 and 16 reminds us, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, 
but was in all ways tempted as we are. Yet without sin, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace and help in the time of need. And it's my prayer that you have obtained God's mercy, His grace in your time of need. And you have realized that there is only one mediator between God and all humanity, the man, Jesus Christ. Let's go ahead and stand together. Here on Wednesday evenings, and for those who are listening on the radio tonight, and those maybe watching or listening at a later time, we've had a habit for the last year plus of going through the ABCs of salvation. And partly I do this to kind of train us up. Maybe one day we'll be in a situation where we want to share the Word of God with someone, and uh, we'll be thinking, what's A stand for? Well, A stands for admit. Admit to God that you are a sinner and ask for his forgiveness. The Bible tells us in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But in 1 John 1.9, it tells us if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The A, admit to God that you are a sinner. The B is believe. Believe in the work that Jesus did upon the cross, his death, burial, and resurrection, and receive that gift of salvation. The Bible tells us in Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We need to believe in the work of Jesus, that which he did upon the cross. And the C is for confess. Confess your faith in Jesus Christ. Share that faith with others. Romans 10 verses 9 and 10 says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Romans 10:13. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Those who might need prayer have questions. If you're here, you can talk to me. If you're listening, please email us at cclv at comcast.net. We'd love to correspond with you. cclv at comcast.net. This coming Sunday, we continue our journey through the Gospels. Once again, we're going to find ourselves in the Gospel of John, this time in chapter 4. But we're not going to take all, quite a bit of it, but not all of chapter 4. And uh, I titled this coming Sunday's message, True Worshippers. We're going to be looking at the woman at the well. And the woman at the well, the fields are white unto harvest, uh, Jesus ministering to the Samaritans. There's a number of ways we can approach this. But we're kind of at a place where Jesus is toward the end of the first year, beginning the second year of ministry. He's making his way to the Galilee. So we're going to stop right before he gets to the Galilee. And in all four Gospels, so next week we'll look at this, all four Gospels tells us that he goes to the Galilee, John included. So John just gives us a little more detail before he gets there of how he stopped at a Samaritan village to minister to a certain woman that in turn would share Christ with her whole community. So this coming Sunday morning at 10 a.m., we hope you'll be able to join us here or at least through radio or through our social media.
Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you for this night, for learning about the tabernacle. These things, Lord, are, are very foreign to us. Um, we can see pictures, and I today I was looking at a book of pictures about the temple and the tabernacle and the priestly garments, trying to get a better understanding of these things. We can go to Israel and see the Temple Institute and see some of these things that have already been reconstructed and are prepared for the third temple to be used in the third temple. But sometimes, Lord, it's hard for us to get a clear picture. But we see a significance in the tabernacle, the three different metals used, gold inside the tabernacle, silver and bronze outside. In the courtyard, the bronze specifically dealing with sacrificial offerings and judgment. And we see a connection of all these things to our Savior Jesus, who became the ultimate sacrifice for our sins upon the cross, who is the true high priest that serves and mediates in our behalf at the throne of God today in the true tabernacle of God, which is in heaven. So, Lord, as we go through the construction of these things, help us to gain a better understanding of the work and ministry of Christ, that we might know you better, that we might draw closer to you in all things. Bless us, Lord, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. I pray that God would bless you and keep you, that his face would always shine upon you and give you peace. God bless.